Welcome to the Money Tree Investing Podcast. Stock market, wealth, personal finance, value stocks. Invest in your life. Hello, Smart Money Tree Podcast listeners. Welcome to this week's show. My name is Kirk Chisholm, and I will be your host. So today we're talking with Rick Allen. How are you doing today, Rick? Doing great, Kirk. How are you? Good. I love these type of interviews. Today we're going to be talking about distressed assets and private notes. Rick, can you tell us a little bit about your background? I've been investing in distressed assets since 2005 when there really weren't distressed assets. I kind of got cut my teeth in the real estate space, working for a nationwide wholesale company and originating hard money. And in 2008, when the market sort of started to tank and the hard money was drying up, we went and started our own real estate investment company, myself and a couple of partners and did pretty well. We flipped about 400 homes between 2008 and the end of 2011. At that point, I had my second child and I was looking forward to raising kids and playing a lot of golf and kind of having a, a lifestyle business. So we sold off the company. It lasted about three months. I accidentally bought my first mortgage note, which was 90 grand in debt frame duplex. And I paid 8,400 bucks for it. 14 days later, I had my money back in from a deed and loo and sold the property for 38,000. So it kind of set me sail down the distressed debt path, if you will. So explain that. How does distressed debt work? Probably the listeners, probably a lot of them haven't heard of this before. It was unique to me at the time. I was like, wow, you can buy somebody's debt. And what had happened is an REO agent who I'd bought a lot of property from reached out and said, hey, we buy a mortgage note. In 2008, when the market really started to crash, the banks were left with a lot of debt that was in default. People hadn't been paying prices were crashing. And so actually Obama kind of started everything and said, look, I'm not going to be the administration that forecloses on America. And he kind of gave direction to the bank. You guys need to go ahead and start liquidating this stuff. And so they did. They started packaging up large pools or portfolios of defaulted debt and selling them off to some of the larger funds, maybe like a Blackstone or a BlackRock. And how it works is Blackstone or BlackRock are really only interested in the cream of the crop off the top. So they're looking for the assets worth 300,000 or more. And so they take those assets and then they break up the rest of them into smaller pools of 50 million and they'll send it down the line to a smaller fund. And we started just buying from those funds, one-off assets in our backyard. I looked at it and it was a great way to get access to inventory that nobody had. You know, we'd always said when we were buying and selling REOs, like, man, it'd be really great if we could be the bank and just have all these assets. And it kind of came true. And we we became the bank. We're buying non-performing debt and ended up either having them sign the property over to us, turning it into a performing asset or foreclosing and getting the property back. So it really worked out. So let's talk about a few of those paths. If you take over a non-performing asset, one way is you can foreclose. So what does that look like? And that's how we got started. We got started with just buying non-performing debt because I was used to owning the real estate. I was like, well, this is a new way to get real estate. So if you buy an asset and you go to, down the foreclosure route, there's two different kinds of foreclosure. A judicial state, which is a state where you have to go through the courts, longer process. Usually you're looking at, at least back then, you're looking at 12, 24, maybe 36 months to get the asset back. Or there's a non-judicial state. Each state has their own foreclosure laws. But in the non-judicial state, you do what's called a sheriff sale. And you can get those done as quickly as 90 days. Either way, whichever state you're in, you decide to foreclose. You have to go through the legal process to get the property back. Obviously, the borrowers can contest it and say that you don't have the, the right to the property. They can challenge your standing. And it can cost you, you know, 15 grand, 20 grand to foreclose. It can be a bumpy road, but it's really a surefire way to eventually get the property back versus you can actually reach out to the borrowers and have them sign the property over to you. Now it's going to cost you some money probably to get them to sign it over, but you're going to spend the money anyways on an attorney. I'd rather put it in the hands of the borrower, give them a fresh start and kind of shorten your timeline to get the asset back. You're in Florida, right? Yeah, we're in Florida. So is Florida a non-judicial or judicial state? Florida is a judicial state. We were really hit hard when there was that downturn, that crash and the meltdown. That put just a huge black log in the courts to the point where they were actually hiring retired judges 
to come in to start funneling through all the foreclosures. So you had judges who weren't necessarily in that sort of that realm that had been doing criminal that were now in there trying to help manage the foreclosure workload. It's definitely a process if you're in a judicial state to actually get one of these foreclosures done. Now the pipeline has opened up a little bit or had opened up. It kind of closed down with COVID, but now foreclosures are moving through there pretty reasonably, maybe nine, nine to 10 months. So let's talk a little bit about COVID. I know COVID froze the course for over a year. How did that affect the foreclosure process if that was one of the paths you're going to take? It locked it down. What happened was COVID, obviously nobody could go to the courts. And in Florida, it only shut it down for six months, but we have assets in Illinois, Cook County, and it shut it down to where it just opened up this past year, like in January. So foreclosures were locked down. If it was an owner-occupied house, forget it. You couldn't foreclose. They stopped it. If it was a vacant house, they would see those and push those foreclosures through because obviously they don't want vacant property just sitting there deteriorating. But if it was an owner-occupied house that you were foreclosing on, whether or not they were delinquent prior to COVID or because of COVID, you couldn't do anything to foreclose. So it really locked up and jammed up the courts. I had stuff that was at judgment. It was ready to go through. I had sale dates set for March of 2020. And I still own those. I still own the debt on those right now. I mean, I had sale dates ready to go. And the court said, nope, sorry, we're shutting it down. And it was an owner-occupied thing. Now, those people hadn't made a payment in three years prior to COVID. So I had been battling through the court system just to have COVID sit down. And so I'm paying, I guess now, two years of taxes on that stuff about 14 grand a year in taxes to keep the tax police away from me. So it really, it jams you up quite a bit. Now, fortunately, we've also realized quite a bit of property gain in that time that kind of offsets those taxes. That's not all over the country. There's some stuff in the middle of the country and sort of that rust belt area. You didn't see the property appreciation that places like Chicago, most of Florida and other major metropolitan areas did. Well, that's the foreclosure route. There's some other paths you could take when you buy a non-performing asset. What are some of the other ones? Yeah, the foreclosure route's one. If you're dead set on getting the asset back, one of the early tactics that we employed is we would just pay people to walk away. Regardless if they wanted to stay, we would offer them enough money that they couldn't refuse it. We were paying, I was writing checks $25,000 to borrowers to say, look, you signed the house over to you. I'll give you a check for 25 grand. When I'm buying something for 150 and it's worth 300, but they're upside down because of the mortgage that they owe and the past due interest, it makes sense on my end. It's really hard for them to turn down that payment. So that's one of the tactics that we used earlier on was just, it's called a deed in lieu of foreclosure. You sign the deed over, I'll agree to not to foreclose and I'll write you a check. A couple of years after we were buying the non-performing stuff, We uh, got some education, took on a mentor, kind of showed us the inside ropes. And he showed like, look, you can also turn these things performing and turn them into cash flowing assets. If you're paying 50 cents on the dollar, you can turn around and sell them for 80 cents on the dollar. And you don't have to kick somebody out of your house. And you can get a big piece of money up front. And you can get some government assistance programs they had out there called the Hardest Hit Fund. So that's what we started doing is we sort of shifted our thesis to let's look at, can we help the borrowers first instead of, can we take the house back? And then obviously you're always left with, Hey, I can take the house back if need be. When that happened with a double bottom line, it was for profit and for purpose. It lets you sleep at night knowing you're helping somebody out, but you're also making a really good return. Yeah. I think that's an important part of the concept too, because I think a lot of people don't like this path because they're afraid, well, you're just being a vulture and you're taking advantage of people who are in a tough spot. But at least from my understanding of it, a lot of the people who do it, sometimes there's no other choice for them. If this isn't an option, then it's going to foreclosure anyway. It's not like you're taking an option off the table for them. Oftentimes it falling into the hands of investors like ourselves, it's the best thing possible just because of exactly what you just said. There is this vulture fund mentality that a lot of investors have. Once they move past that, you start looking at, can I help the borrower? Ultimately, we don't have as much red tape to cut through as say one of the the big banks or maybe some of these larger funds who have a more of a, you're just a number. 
you know, when you have your own money invested in this, you're a lot more motivated to turn that money into performing. Because as I said earlier, when you're staring down the barrel of 24, 36 months on a foreclosure timeline, plus adding in 15 grand of cost, well, if I can get them paying right away, it not only helps them out, it helps us out. And it's really the right thing to do. And that was a big thing that we did is when we realized this, we actually went through the SEC and got a SEC qualified fund called Money with Meaning Fund. And that was it. We wanted to partner our money with meaning. We could really help somebody out, save their house and use foreclosure, Dean Lou as an absolute last resort. You just mentioned you got registered the SEC. Do you need to be licensed at all to do this? In some states you do. There's licensing in some states. You can do tons of research and figure it out. We don't buy assets, obviously, in that state that we don't have licensing. There's ways to work around it with having a loan servicer who's handling the debt collection. Some states like Georgia, you have to have an originator's license. And other states, you just have to have a a debt collector's license. There's workarounds, but I would always say if you're going to jump into this, go ahead and talk to an attorney and figure out what states do you need to be licensed in and what states do you not. Okay. That's important to check out. You also mentioned part of this is helping to make the asset perform. So what are some ways that that can be done that make it a a positively cash flowing property and also obviously benefit the existing owner? I would say a majority of the time, probably 75, 80% of the time when a borrower stopped paying on their loan, what we saw is there was an actual life event that happened. Somebody got sick, somebody lost their job. They're not bad people. They just fell on hard times. You know, life happened to them. Then there's the other 20% where I've talked to borrowers and said, well, why'd you stop paying? And said, well, my neighbor stopped paying on his mortgage. So I figured I'd stop paying on my mortgage and see what (laughs) terrible logic, but hey, you know what? You got to try to work with everybody. So if somebody has a life event happen, most of the time they have what's called emotional equity. They want to keep their house. Nobody wants to lose their house. And that's sort of always our first question. Hey, when we reach out to somebody on an asset we just bought, we would always ask them, do you want to keep the property? Most of the time they said yes. And so from there, we can figure out, okay, let's back into how much money can they afford? Does that mean we're going to have to reduce the principal? Sometimes we would do a principal reduction, the amount that they owe, because you don't want to, especially early on, you didn't want to have something where somebody owed $200,000 and the house is now worth $100,000. doesn't matter if you reset the clock for them. There's not a lot of motivation to keep paying. And so we did some principal reductions. We usually kept the interest rates fairly high. We were keeping them at 6 or 7% just to mitigate the risk on our end and also make them to where you can turn around and resell them. There was a lot of, and they're coming back down early on in like 12, 13, 14, there were these government programs called the Hardest Hit Fund, where government gave billions of dollars to, it was like the 28 hardest hit states with the goal of putting that money into the hands of the lenders and the borrowers to catch them up and help not have the house go through foreclosure. So there is another program out there right now, which is great because there's a bunch of defaulted debt right now because of COVID. So they put out this money now for these programs and they gave them to all 50 states. And they said, look, this money needs to go out. There's different systems in place to make sure it gets into the hands of the borrowers to pay off defaulted debt. But that's just another way that you can take one of these assets that are non-performing, turn them performing and either hold them in your portfolio as a cash performing, you know, as a cash flowing asset, collect the interest, or you can turn around and then resell them. You know, if you paid 60 cents on the dollar, sell them for 85, 95 cents on the dollar now. I have not heard of the hardest hit fund. I know when COVID happened, a lot of the real estate community were kind of ignored by the government. You know, everyone else got assistance, you know, the EIDL loans and all the PPP loans and the real estate community pretty much got ignored, which was kind of surprising to me because a lot of people just stopped paying, which is understandable if you're not working, but somebody's got to pay the bills. What's interesting is not a lot of people know this, but buried inside the CARES Act, there was some legislation that allows the banks to not report defaulted debt or delinquent debt on their books if it's attributed to COVID. (laughs) Wow, 0% defaulted debt in the last two years. (laughs) Everything is related to COVID. I'm sure you've seen and heard like, wow, the bank, not that much defaulted debt. Default rates are the lowest they've been in years, stuff along those lines. But really, it's not true. 
you know, Wells Fargo has a securitization. There's 30,000 loans in there that's collapsing. Somebody else is releasing a $168 billion portfolio in October to the market. That moratorium that was in the CARES Act is expiring. When does that expire? I'm not exactly sure. I know that that's why you're going to start seeing a flood of stuff into the marketplace. You know, we have a trading platform called PaperStack. We're actually gearing up an enterprise portion of that platform to start handling some of these institutional trades. One of the questions that comes up, obviously, is this all sounds interesting. You know, how do people go about finding these deals? And when they do, how do they go about selling them? It sounds great that you can flip this and make a cash flow, and that's great. But for somebody who's never done this before, how would they go about this? First thing I would do is say, get some education on it. Anybody who's getting into the note space, find education out there. There's plenty of people out there who are teaching. And the reason for that is, is you don't want to blow your leg off first time around the you know, track. You don't want to crash the car because there's a lot of nuances to investing in debt. The nice thing is if you've been investing in real estate, Ultimately, it's all backed by real estate. So you're half of the way there, but you definitely want to have some education or just go to a fund or you know an advisor who can point you in the right direction on making some private money investments. That was one of the things to your question, where do you find this stuff? How do you transact it? When we got into the business or into this space, we didn't see anything out there. After doing several trades, we're like, we need to kind of fix this. You know, I was used to the real estate space where when it came time to close, I would take stuff to an attorney or a title company. They would handle the escrow. They would handle drafting the documents. In the mortgage space, there wasn't anything like that. I was supposed to send my money directly to the seller before they actually gave me the collateral file, you know, which is the mortgage, the note and all that stuff. So it was very foreign to me. So we created a company called Paperstack, which is an online trading platform. So it's got a marketplace component to it that allows you to easily look at inventory. You can list your own inventory for sale. You can buy inventory. But more importantly, we've got a transaction management engine that walks you through your first offer all the way to when you close it. And we handle escrow, we handle collateral audits, and kind of everything in between. So it it provides people that safe, transparent environment to get in there and start buying and selling debt and do it with minimal risk, at least on the transaction side of stuff. Now, we don't do due diligence for people. That's definitely on the buyer. But we also do manage the transaction so they can have that sort of structured workflow. Let's get into a little bit more about where people find these. I mean, they can find them on the marketplace. That's one place. But obviously, people are originating them somewhere. So there's kind of a couple different ways to do it. Go right to hedge funds. There's community banks. You know, if you go to a community bank and reach out to them, there's a good chance that they've got some stuff on the books that's delinquent or defaulted and they need to move it off the books. It never looks good for them. And the unique thing about a community bank, they have a community image that they have to uphold. They don't want to have that headline risk of going out and foreclosing on somebody. So it's easier for them to offload and turn around and sell it. There's tons of other brokers out there is a great way. I've bought several assets from brokers. I would use some of the social media stuff, LinkedIn. I would use Facebook groups to a degree, but then going to any of the events, I would look for NPL, PL, whole loan trading events, conferences. That is huge. There's an event called IMN. They have two of them. They have one in in the winter and I guess, early spring and March. And then they have one in September. The one in March is in Florida. The one in September is usually in like Dana Point, California, or somewhere in LA. It's a great event to go to. It's a little expensive, but you go there and you have everybody from mom and pop investors who maybe have 20 assets that they're either there to buy more, they're there to sell assets, or they're just a network all the way up to guys who have $4 billion in dry powder deploy. I was there and Penny Mac was there and they like, we've got a whole pile of assets I can put in front of you. I was actually speaking at that event and somebody from Chase's Wealth Management Division came up and would try to sell me a $100 million portfolio. So it's definitely the industry events are the easiest way to get plugged right in. And there's several of them throughout the years. We're going to one next month in Vegas, which is really good called Paper Source. So talking about locating them is one thing. So how does somebody 
analyze or do due diligence on a note once they find one and know that if this is good or bad or how to price it? Like, how does that work? I start with on any asset, it's always what's the underlying collateral worth, that being the house. You have to know if I take this house back, how much is it going to be worth? I look at the solds, I look at what's for sale, active pending sold, just like you'd comp any house. From there, you want to start looking at the collateral file. You want to look at the chain of title, make sure that every time the loan is sold, there's a corresponding assignment of mortgage, which transfers the mortgage, and then a corresponding transfer of the note. So you'll either see a stamp that basically says, pay this note to the order of, or you'll have what's called an allonge. And that's what transfers the note. So every time that collateral file is sold, you'll have an allonge and assignment. So you want to check the title. And then you really want to get in there and start looking at the payment history and what's called the servicing notes. The servicing notes are the notes that are recorded every time the loan servicer, which is the person that's usually taking in the payments, there are professional companies out there that do it. They'll make notes every time they talk to the borrower or the investor, every time they pull the check for taxes. So you want to check the payment history and the servicing notes so you can kind of put together the story. That's all we really are as note investors is we're trying to understand what's the story of this loan? What's the chance of it being continued to be performing if it's a performing asset? Or what are the chances of it going non-performing? What are the chances of it getting it re-performing if it's a non-performing loan? Those are the big things and just trying to understand, look, what's the history on this loan and what are the chances of it either being fixed or continuing to go in the same direction it's going? You know, looking at the chain of title, the servicing notes, the collateral, still, how would you go about pricing it? Like what goes into that process of figuring, all right, I'm going to pay you 56 cents on a dollar instead of 60. Like, how do you come to that determination? So right now it's, what are your fund requirements? If it's a performing loan, you're looking at what's the interest rate? What's my yield? Everyone's got their target yield, whether they're buying a house for a rental or they're buying a performing loan. You got to figure out what's your performing yield. If it's a very high interest rate, maybe you've got eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. Well, you're going to need less of a discount to hit a 10% yield. Now, if it's a 4% loan, and you need to hit a 10% yield, well, you have to buy a significant discount on there to hit your yield. So that's one way to do it if it's on the performing side. If it's on the non-performing side, you're looking at, okay, well, what's the house worth? Because ultimately I'm planning on worst case scenario that I'm going to have to take it back. And so you would look at it and price it similar to the way you would price a rehab on a property. You sort of back into your numbers, say, well, what's the total value on this thing? Okay, how many repairs am I going to have to do? And then you just have an extra line item on there, which is what are my foreclosure costs? So if I want to make 20%, I can sort of back into that number and say, okay, that means that I'm going to have to buy it for 56 cents on the dollar. And so you kind of get that sense of whenever you're buying real estate, that people most of the time if they're trying to hit that 18% return or 20% return, their bids usually always come in very similar to each other. Maybe one person thinks they can cut a corner on the rehab and get their bid a little higher so they can still hit their numbers. It's the same thing with non-performing stuff. You usually are going to have like a market rate. That's going to dictate where you wind up, where you wind up with your bid. Now, are these notes typically pretty competitive? I would imagine if you're trying to get a yield too high, you're probably going to get priced out by somebody else. So how competitive is it trying to buy into some of these notes? It can be competitive. If you're looking at a 400 loan portfolio, you can rest assured that that portfolio is being sent out to not just individual investors, but guys who manage micro funds who maybe have 50 or 80 million under management. So you're very competitive there. When you're buying distressed debt, or when you're buying performing and non-performing debt, usually you wouldn't think it, but the bigger the portfolio, actually you wind up with a less discount. It's not a, the more you buy, the bigger your discount situation. Uh, The reason for that is they'll pay a little more because they can spread the risk over more assets. And they know just inherently there's that 80-20 rule where you're going to hit on 80 of them, 20 of them are going to be stinkers and they're either going to just try to liquidate those off or they're just going to take it on the chin and realize that the other 80% is going to make up for it. So that's where you run into a lot of competition. Now, if you're doing marketing for off-market loans, the competition's not nearly as stiff. 
it requires a little more work, a little more effort. But if you're sending out mailers, or you're doing the, the text messaging thing or something along those lines, and you have a list of people who are owner financed mortgages, maybe you can get really good discounts. You can buy performing loans right now for 65, 70 cents on the dollar if you get the right person you can definitely make up for maybe some of the more competitive arenas by buying in the off-market owner finance space. 65 cents on the dollar for performing loans, really? Yeah, you can do that. I've purchased some. And what happens is you send out you know, your mailers and somebody who inherited an owner financed mortgage, they're collecting $600 a month. And you say, look, I can take this off your hands and I can give you a lump sum of maybe like $50,000 they're like, look, I just want to be done with it. Or a lot of times what I'm hearing right now, or what I'm speaking to now is, you know, folks who are in their 80s, they respond to some sort of marketing that we've done for them. And they say, look, I'm getting old. I don't need the money. I've got 20 of these things. I'd like to turn them all into cash and leave them sitting in an account. So when I pass away, my kids aren't having to sort through this mess and that they've just got cash that they can divide up. So they're getting their affairs in order. And typically those folks are not giving you 65 cents. You're at 75 with them. But people who have inherited it or people who have a life event and they need access to capital quickly, they'll definitely do 65 cents on the dollar for a performing asset. If the performing ones are getting 65 cents on the dollar, what do the non-performing ones typically get? 65 is not the norm. That's probably best case scenario. You're probably looking at 75 really is realistically, but non-performing assets, it really is going to start looking at what is the actual principal balance. So the more expensive the asset, a $250,000 house, that's going to have less of a discount. You're probably looking down at 73 to 76 cents on the dollar. Something that's 50,000, you're going to be at 50 cents on the dollar. And the reason for that is it's, it's going to cost you the same $15,000 to foreclose if you have to take it back. So if I'm spending $15,000 on a $150,000, $200,000 house, it's quite a bit differently. There's more cushion than versus a $50,000 house. I got to have a deeper discount because when I figure in my foreclosure costs, plus any ultimate repairs, there's a good chance that I'm going to be at par of what the house is worth when it's all said and done. Basically, performing loans and non-performing are around the same discount, obviously with asset prices dictating on the non-performing, but I would have thought the non-performing would have been a bigger discount. It's not right now. Again, when I started this, I paid $0.08 cents on the dollar. Wow. Yeah. So I paid under $0.10 cents on the dollar for an asset. <laughs> but as it goes on right now, that's not really the case. And the reason for that is, is touched on it earlier, a majority of the country has experienced sort of phenomenal real estate growth. And so your discount there is kind of running the same. I said 65 cents on performing stuff. Is that the norm? No, that's probably best case scenario. I would say you're going to run into an average of 75 cents if you're doing your own marketing and getting stuff that's off market. If you're doing stuff that's on market, you can expect 88 cents on the dollar. It's no different than the real estate space. If I buy something where I'm competing with a bunch of investors on off the MLS or from a wholesaler, you're going to pay a premium. But if I'm doing my own marketing and I'm footing that bill and I'm talking to somebody that hasn't spoken to another investor before, I've got a good shot of getting a bigger discount. So that's really where you build in your discount and kind of hedge the competition is by doing your own marketing. You know, That's a full arm of your business that you have to be able to manage. That definitely makes a lot of sense. We're getting close to wrapping up here, but let's talk about the risks because every investment has risks. So what would you say the risks are for investing in distressed assets? I haven't seen it to where you're going to lose your total investment unless you fail on your due diligence. Some of the stuff that are the biggest risks to this business are going to be taxes, title, and blight. So taxes, if you don't do, do proper due diligence and check to see if there's pass-through taxes that can eat you up pretty quickly. Title, if there's an issue on title, like maybe your mortgage was already satisfied or there's a first position in front of you and you thought you were first position, that's a huge issue. And then blighted property. So if everybody on your street has boarded up windows, what's the number one rule in real estate? Location, 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 right? So you want to make sure you're buying in a good location. It's going to have a high demand. Something in Bethany, Missouri, with a population of 2,600, 
Well, if you get that property back and maybe a nice house, but you got to realize your buyer pool is far smaller. So to sell that property, it's going to be a little bit tougher or a lot tougher. So those are the three things that really present the highest risk. The nice thing is most of the time, all the, the assets that you're buying have title insurance on it. So, you know, the way title insurance works, it's from the purchase backwards. So if there was something where there was a recorded mortgage that wasn't satisfied, you're protected with some title insurance. And then you've got hazard insurance as a lender, you're protected. So if something blows away on the house, at least, you know, a majority of your investment is secured by some insurance there. We've had times when there was a small balance loan, a tree fell on the house and there was enough to pay off the loan. And by every time everything was said and done, it was about a break-even point for us. So the insurance is not always foolproof, but it can save you. I think the biggest risks are the small balance loans, because if you have to take them back or the basement gets flooded or something like that, there's not a lot of room for managing a rehab in there. And you wind up having to go a little bit longer and turn it into a rental or offer some owner financing to somebody, turn it back into a mortgage at maybe a higher rate. So you mentioned insurance. If you're owning the paper and somebody else owns the house, how do you make sure there's insurance on the property? You do an insurance check. So if it's not escrowed, you require your borrowers to send you the insurance. And what happens is once they send you the proof of insurance, you're able as a lien holder to get added as an additional insured on the property. So you have to do that. If they don't have insurance, you do something called FPI or forced place insurance. What you can do is you can pay, and usually there's an umbrella policy that you have multiple assets, but you add that asset under your umbrella policy and then you're covered in the event that there's you know loss to the property. The borrower is not if it's a forced place insurance policy. So you can put policies in place. So basically, if you own a, a mortgage on a property and let's say the person doesn't have insurance or they can't pay the bills, they probably aren't paying the insurance either, right? Maybe they don't have insurance. You're saying the, F, the forced place insurance can substitute for that to make sure that you're covered. The lender pays that. And, you know, I recommend everybody get a loan servicer. So when we started in this business, I didn't use a loan servicer. I serviced my own loans. Loan servicers, they're fairly cheap. If it's a performing loan, you can get them for like 10 or 12 bucks a month per asset. If it's non-performing and you need specialty insurance or specialty servicing, somebody to handle the foreclosure, somebody who's sort of a running quarterback, to handle all loss mitigation, it costs you a hundred bucks a loan per month. So, I mean, that can get expensive quickly, but if it's a foreclosure and you say, look, it's 1200 bucks for the year, but somebody is running point and they're keeping us A, in compliance with Dodd-Frank and all the other regulations out there, it's well worth it. Also then they're reaching out to the borrower, they're tracking insurance, they're tracking taxes. So the borrower is not calling you. You know, the nice thing about debt is it can be very passive, more so than rentals. So you don't have to really do much and you can put a loan servicer in place to sort of handle everything. And I recommend everybody gets a professional servicer. It's just worth the cost and it's really risk mitigation. Yeah. That's going to be the next question is if you have 50 or hundred of these things, how do you manage them all? To me, that'd be a lot of work. It is a lot of work. If they're performing, it's not a lot of work because you have your loan servicer. And sort of once you hit that like 100 loan mark, you're sort of in that crossing the chasm from going to, okay, these are just either a full-time job for you or you're offloading everything to your loan servicer. But that's sort of like that threshold because at that point, yes, it does become a lot to manage unless you lean heavily on your servicers. But as soon as stuff starts going non-performing, you know, if you lose 20% of your pool or your portfolio to non-performing, you have a lot of work on your hands to start managing foreclosures and everything like that. So it becomes a full-time job very quickly. You know, as we wrap up here, any kind of final thoughts or things that I think people should know that we haven't talked about? I think you kind of cover, yes, some really good questions. I think one of the things I will circle back to is it's a great investment class. I love it. There's a lot of different exit strategies and a lot of different ways that you can capitalize on your investment. It's very important that you do your research. Start with Dr. Google. Start there and Google and YouTube and learn as much as you can before you dive in head first because there's a lot to it. And it's a great time to start learning about it because I think the next probably 18 to maybe 36 months are going to be pretty impressive. 
as far as the opportunity available for distressed debt investing, it's going to be a really good way to start buying assets at a pretty big discount. That actually raises an interesting question I want to ask you is, where do you see the industry going? You know, a lot's changed in the last two years with COVID. And personally, I have probably different opinions than most when it comes to inflation and where interest rates are going. And I assume that's going to impact real estate quite a bit. So what do you kind of foresee in the future with all that going on? I personally think there's going to be a downturn with rising interest rates, with this sort of shadow debt that's not being paid. I just think it's a recipe for a correction. Definitely won't be where it was in 2008, 9, 10, but I think it's definitely setting us up for a correction. We've had real estate that's been really on fire right now, been red hot. And some of that's the supply chain. I mean, look at everything. I guess you pump $6 trillion into the economy, everything's going to cost more money, whether it's cars, milk, whether it's houses, wood. So I think that all just leads to there There has to be a little bit of a correction. You can't keep running like this. And I think the inflation rate, rising interest rates, it all is going to kind of support that. What are your thoughts? One of the things I think about is owning real estate, you're benefiting from the debt depreciating through inflation over time. But when you own the debt, you're on the other side of that. So in, in essence, your debt is devaluing by what is it, 8% a year or whatever the inflation is. To me, that would be a concern. The printing of money, I don't see as the culprit. I know a lot of people assume printing money equals inflation, but it doesn't always equal inflation. It can equal inflation. I think the inflation we have is more through the supply chain, so supply-side inflation, which is very different, which is hard to imagine the Federal Reserve raising interest rates is going to change that. It's not going to affect the supply chain other than maybe driving down demand because people can't afford it. I mean, that's probably what they're trying to do. But in essence, it's not what people think it is. I think people are going to be surprised at how long inflation sticks around. From everything I'm hearing, it's not earlier than 18 months before the supply chain gets fixed. We're probably looking three to five years. So if that's the case, I'd be curious because we do a lot of private mortgages too. And I like the fact they're short term, which is part of the benefit is you don't have that issue coming. There's a lot of benefits of it. I'm on the same page as you, but I'm curious in your thoughts of how you see inflation impacting the rates or the note market in general. We've been used to this for 20 years. We've had low rates for a long time. We have had low rates. I think the inflation and the rising rates, what is that doing? For the marketplace, what I've seen is when the rates are up, you're going to have people more likely to sell and offload some of their lower interest bearing loans because they say, well, I can now go put this somewhere else and get a better loan. What you're also going to see is you're going to see more, I think, more owner financed, a bigger leverage on owner financing. Less people are going to qualify for loans right now. The owner financing market is big. It's getting bigger. People are, have realized there is some power in debt. I talked to so many people that are so happy getting 6% right now. <laughs> They're like, I'm getting 6%. Where am I going to get 6% outside of this? You know, It's not for me to tell them there's other options to get higher than 6%. <laughs> I get said to Kurt, I'm sure you're going to get a much higher than that. It's one of those things where the inflation is going to have effect on people who are the paycheck to paycheck. It's not really going to affect upper America, but definitely middle America. The ones that were already feeling the pinch is getting stronger. The belt's getting tighter on them. I agree with you, the supply chain stuff. My buddy's wife works at Cisco and I talk to her all the time about what's going on. And there's these little supply chain issues that people don't think about, like the chicken, chicken wings were way up. And then chicken wings started coming back down. She's like, well, the issue now is the price of the oil to fry the chicken wings is gone way up. And I go, well, how can that be? And they go, well, the little plastic bins that they put the oil in, right now there's a shortage of them. And so when that happens, it becomes an issue. So they're looking at doing, because of their buying power, of buying up all the trailers out there to control their competition. So the supply chain is huge. Talking with my buddy, he's a contractor, builds you know two, $3 million houses, Everything is up 70% over what it was last year, the price of materials. So I agree with you. The supply chain is a big part of what's going on with inflation. And I don't know, it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next 18 to 36 months. I know it's going to continue to cause people to fall behind on their mortgages. And it's going to create, unfortunately, it creates opportunity. When there's blood in the streets, 
it stinks because people are going to lose their homes, but it does create opportunity for those who are investors and can capitalize on it. Yeah, I think that's part of the problem is people go through hard times, but there's also opportunity. And a lot of people have a struggle with that. But at the end of the day, it's that's how the economy works. There's good times and bad times. When you overindulge in the good times, then people come and clean it up in the bad times and then resets the system and then people go back along their way. And there are always going to be winners and losers. That's it. That's not going to change. No matter how bad you feel about it, it's not going to change. And that's exactly right. You can look at it, you can feel bad about it, and you can say, well, I mean, it is what it is. And that's, there's blood in the streets, there's opportunity, and somebody's going to have to capitalize on it. Somebody's going to have to clean it up. In a normal economy, that's what happens. We haven't seen that in decades. So I'm sure the Fed will come in and, quote unquote, save the day that they caused the problem of. But yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show, Rick. We'll probably have you on the future too, because this is one of those areas that I'm sure there's going to be a ton of opportunity come down pipe as things change. So where can people find more about you? You can check us out at paperstack.com. You can email me at rick at paperstack.com. There's no K, it's P-A-P-E-R-S-T-A-C. If you Google Paperstack, you'll probably find uh, we have a YouTube channel that offers just a bunch of free education, podcast, Paperstack podcast. So We're out there definitely on social media. Would love for you guys to engage and drop a comment, leave some feedback. We're pretty responsive and like to talk with folks and just bring light to what's available right now and help grow this this secondary mortgage space. All right. Well, that was a great interview with Rick. Appreciate him coming on the show here and sharing his wisdom. I think this is one of those great areas that People really don't understand well enough, or in some cases, they look down on for various reasons. We're going to get into that with the panel portion of the show here. So this week, we have our very own Barb Freeberg. Hey, Barb. Hi, everybody. How you doing? Glad to have you on. We also have a returning guest and panelist, Kelly Coughlin. Hey, Kelly. Hello. How are you doing? Good. Well, let's just dive right in. We'll start with Kelly. So Kelly, you have a background in distressed assets. What are some of your thoughts about investing in distressed assets or things that people should know? What I would like to introduce first is what's the kind of the definition of a distressed asset. I'd like to start first with talking about, I don't want to get into too much nerdy accountant talk here, but it's kind of important to get it structured the right way. If you recall your basic accounting 101, you have assets equal liabilities plus equity. And when we talk about distressed assets, we tend to be thinking about the asset. So asset equals the other side of the equation. And when we invest in the asset, we end up either investing in the liability side, the debt, and or the equity side. So I think it's important when people look at this is, okay, yes, I'm getting the asset. But really what I'm buying is the ownership of that asset, the equity, or I'm buying the debt claim on that asset. And it's important to know, well, which one is it? And sometimes it's a mix. It's a hybrid of those things. So it's important to kind of frame it up there. Are you buying equity? Are you buying debt? You know, each has its own kind of benefit and risk that we can get into at some point. But I think that's kind of a basic kind of 101 where are you in that asset equal liability plus equity paradigm? That's a good start for framing it that way. What about distressed? I mean, what makes it distressed? Well, distressed typically means that there's some inability to meet the, if it's a debt, it means typically means they're getting close to, or they have reached the point where they can't meet their contractual commitments, their debt covenants, they're not making their interest payments. At the end of the day, it kind of comes down to that, that they can't make their interest payments or typically in a, in a loan, you might have, if it's a commercial type deal, there might be some earnings or interest coverage ratios that the bank says or the issuer says, okay, if you get below this level, that's kind of a yellow warning or red flag type thing. And they don't want it to get any worse. So it could be that kind of distress. If it's an equity, it could be, you know, there's been management turnaround, there's been failure to meet earnings, there could be a lot of reasons that causes the equity side, but 
typically, I don't know if you guys would agree with this, but typically distressed asset, we tend to mean the debt side, the liability side has been, is suffering somewhat. I don't know if you guys agree with that concept, but. Yeah, I think that's a fair way to frame it. So Barb, what were some of your thoughts from the interview? Well, if I can be perfectly candid, distressed debt is really what Rick was talking about. And so what that means is you're buying up people's debt because they can't afford to make the payments on the debt. So where do you do that? How do you do that? And Rick does that individually. You know, he finds it at different sources. He's got ways to go and get it, bid on it. And the goal, I think, for a lot of debt owners is they don't want to own the underlying real estate that the debt is attached to. They just want the debt. That sounded kind of complicated to me. I'm a little bit lazier. And so I'd like to throw out to the listeners that, you know, debt's an asset class, just like bonds are. And you can buy debt in so many different ways. And so not only buying distressed debt from the people that own the debt, you can go to crowdfunding platforms that specialize in like mortgage debt, like ground floor or something like that. There's a whole bunch of them. A whole bunch of these real estate platforms will also sell you the debt. Now, it may not be distressed, but it's debt. It offers a legitimate return and it's a lot easier. So that was kind of my take. It's out there as an asset class. You can research it, learn how to do it directly. You'd probably get greater profits, but it would be a lot more work than if you went to a platform that was already selling either debt or distressed assets. It brings up a point. I know, Kelly, with your background and working with restructuring and helping companies, there are certainly a lot of investors out there that buy distressed debt in order to control a company. They might buy it out of bankruptcy, or they might buy a non-performing note in order to get control of the asset. You know, like some investors do. They'll either lend hard money to people knowing that they might not pay it back, or they might buy it from somebody knowing that they're going to control the asset. So how does that kind of feed into like an investing strategy? Because I know you've really helped people on all sides of that equation. I think it kind of gets... To I want to piggyback off what Barb said so eloquently that when you look at a distressed debt, we focus on that for a second. It breaks into two categories from there. It's either a permanent impingement of the asset value or a temporary. And permanent means that it's going to stay distressed forever. Then the next question is, okay, if it's a permanent thing, then how do we get our value out of it? That's the exit strategy. And so then the exit in a permanent impingement is liquidation values. What can we sell the asset for and how much debt do we have? And you know what's the arbitrage there? Pick up a few crumbs that way. Sometimes you can pick up an enormous amount that way. That's the permanent. On the temporary The best example I think of on temporary is you guys might remember back in the 80s, Barb, you were, you must have been like five years old, but I was around. You were around, but do you remember Tylenol when there's a Tylenol scare? Of course. Yes. Right. That's the best example I kind of use on distressed equity. And there was some debt arbitrage in that thing too. Just by background, Tylenol, there was this scare that in some of the grocery stores, there was poison or something, some toxic thing that was in the Tylenol thing, and the stock just plummeted. Then it turned out that, I can't even remember what the issue was, but it wasn't a permanent thing. Tylenol, J&J, Johnson Johnson has recovered enormously since then. So that was one of those temporary distressed situations. And the exit there is... Then you ask the question, okay, how does the temporary thing, how do you recover that? First of all, you have to ask, well, what caused the distress, the impingement of value? Was it management? Was it they just had a bad quarter? What was it that caused that? And then when you look at investing in it, then you say, okay, well, maybe it was just some market weird thing that happened, like it was kind of with J&J, Tylenol. 
and then it will recover once the blowdown you know passes away and then it calms down or it's more significant and then you have to ask well what are they doing to change this to recover the value and i think kirk that's what you look at in terms of that portfolio from an investor is is it permanent or is it temporary and if it's temporary then what's going to happen to recover this i don't know if that got your question it may have been too much that you wanted but that's kind of how i frame it up no, that's good. That's helpful. So, Barb, I know you have some experience in real estate. Kind of, what's been your experience with this part of the market? Have you invested in distressed assets before when it comes to real estate, or what does that kind of mean for you for opportunities? When I was first starting out, I would go to the sheriff's sales where they had home foreclosures in my town, and I'd bid on those, and I bought a couple of them, and that is buying the equity like Kelly was dividing it into debt and equity. And then you fix up the property, you resell it for a profit. Straightforward. That's kind of what a lot of people do today. Buying the debt is a different thing. I have never done that directly, but I have invested in debt and low quality debt as well on a variety of crowdfunding platforms, as well as in risky bond funds, who pay a very high interest rate or yield because you're taking a greater risk because there's a higher chance of default. Typically, when you're investing in riskier assets, you have a greater chance of returns, but you also have a greater chance of loss. My experience when investing in risky debt on a crowdfunding platform was over the long haul, and I think I was in it for about seven or eight years, was I didn't get the returns that justified the risk I was taking. Now, I came out net positive and I got an okay return, but I think that's something really important for investors to evaluate. Before they get into lower quality assets, you have to do a really good determination about what are your likely returns, because you are taking a lot of risk more risk than you are with an up and running concern, be it a company or debt that is less risky, higher quality. And you have to make sure that the returns you're expecting compensate you for the extra risk you're taking. That's really important to understand. And one thing I want to kind of bring up, because a lot of people think about distressed assets, they think of it as kind of like bottom feeding, like, oh, you're just taking advantage of people and they might have some kind of moral dilemma about whether it makes sense to invest in something where other people are, you know, on the other side of it and may not be doing as well. Kelly, I mean, you've dealt with this a lot on the corporate level. Do you see it the same way? I know some people do, but how should people be looking at this from kind of a bigger picture perspective? It's a good question. It's a fair enough question on kind of an ethical dilemma. I personally don't think bottom feeding is a bad thing. You know, Barb mentioned buying sheriff sale at auction assets. I don't see any issue with that. Now there's these images of in, you know, the depression where farmers would lose their assets and you always felt really bad for these farmers that had the debt. And then the, the rich guy that bought the asset, he was kind of the antagonist in the film. So I certainly see that, but in most situations, I don't think you're taking advantage of people. Bottom feeding is okay. It just means that you're you're not buying the freshwater trout that are eating all the good food, but you're getting the catfish that are hanging out there and there's value down there. And it's got to go to somebody and it either stays with the bank or the creditor, the lender, or it goes to the market, somebody in the market that can hopefully restore value. So I don't look at bottom feeding as a bad thing. No, I appreciate that perspective. Barb, what about you? What are your thoughts on it? It's really an ethical issue. And if you're a compassionate person, like I like to think I am, I have compassion for people that may have hit on hard times or are having a difficult situation. But there's also the business model. And through that, you make the decisions of how you want to serve society, which, you know, we all do in our own personal ways. 
But then there's the business side of it's unfortunate that some people have difficulties and fall on hard times. But you could say that about the entire value investing sphere, be it stocks, be it bonds, be it whatever. Many of us like to look for bargains in the investment markets, which means assets that might be selling for less than their true value. And many of those bargains are based upon difficulties for either the company or the individual. And I don't think you're a bad person if you buy assets from either individual or a company that are having some difficulties. And you might even be seen as some sort of helper when you are, in fact, helping them get rid of their assets and move on to the next stage of their life. I think it's a great perspective from both of you. I just wanted to kind of add something because I think it's really important when we're talking about the ethical dilemma of whether you should invest in distressed assets. This is what makes markets work. For every buyer, there's a seller. For every seller, there's a buyer. So if there are no buyers at the bottom, then those assets don't get sold, which means that the people who are trying to sell out and maybe just kind of close out this chapter in their life, they can't because there's no one there to buy it. So in many ways, you're clearing the market. I mean, this is a natural market cycle where there are ups and there are downs. And there are ups, people make money. When there are downs, people lose money. That's normal and natural. It's happened for thousands of years, and it'll happen for another thousand years. I think if you're causing somebody to lose their property, that is a problem. If you're just there to provide a bid for, hey, I would love to buy it at this price, I don't think that's an ethical issue. I think it's no different from, as Barb said, it's no different from buying stocks after they've sold off 50%. If a company like Disney's trading at $100 and you can buy it for 20, would you? Or would you feel bad about buying it for 20? I mean, it's the same process, right? You just happen to be buying it at a different price. I think in many ways, there are definitely some ethical problems with this, but I think it's more if you're causing them And there are definitely investors out there who cause companies to go bankrupt because for one reason or another, they're calling the debt or whatever they're doing. I think most investors don't fall in that category. So I just want to throw that out there. I don't want people shying away from this market just because they feel like there's an ethical problem. So I think it's just good to understand that. I just want to add one point to that. Recessions are really the price people pay when they get over leveraged. So you have macro big picture recessions like we might be going into. And then you have micro recession. The business or the industry is suffering. When you get over leveraged, that's the price you pay. When things were going great, you borrowed all this money, you were able to capture more market share, you got aggressive, you were, you crushed it, hopefully. Well, there's a price that you pay. Obviously, you pay interest costs when you do that. And there's a price you pay in terms of risk exposure. When things go south, micro or macro recessions, that's many times the price that you pay. And so insulating people from that is not good for the market. Insulating by feeling guilty over bottom feeding. Well, what we're doing then is kind of insulating people. We're saying, okay, you can do the upside, but on the downside, if things go bad, we're going to make you feel guilty as hell for you know bottom feeding. It doesn't work that way. They go hand in hand. You have a background in doing risk management and due diligence, which I think is important for any distressed asset investing, any investing period, but especially for distressed assets, because there's obviously a little bit more, as people call it, a little more hair on it. It makes sense to really make sure you're doing it right. So when you're looking at distressed assets from a due diligence perspective, or at least identifying risks, how do you do that? What are some things that people should be aware of? Well, I'll go back to what I said earlier without being too redundant here. Is it permanent? Is it temporary? Is it permanent? How are you going to get your value out of a permanently impaired asset value? And that's got to come from liquidation. Then you look at, okay, well, what are we going to be able to sell this asset for so that we can recover our value plus the return there? That's the permanent thing. Those are easier, frankly, because you can kind of say, hey, I could buy this business Let's say I only know this because I was helping somebody kind of look at buying an acupuncture business. It was distressed, right? So we looked at, well, what would the arbitrage be there? Can you sell that kind of business? What could we get out of it? Or could we sell the equipment related to it? You know, how do we get our value out of it? It's easier to do those things because you're not really 
dependent upon change, somebody or something to happen. And so then you get at the temporary part of this. And that's probably where most of these fit in is it's down for a reason, macro reason, micro reason, management reason, whatever it is. So number one, due diligence, what's the prime cause of this distress situation? That's pure and simple. Separate all the noise right from things, get all the hair away from it and look at what's the core cause of this distress situation. And then once you've identified that, how will that cause be removed or mitigated? And will it be? Those are the, like, the two most fundamental, maybe obvious questions, but that's kind of the two things to look at. Then third is, okay, once that, if it does happen, can you get out of it? Can you liquidate? Can you recover that? That's how I look at it. Barb, what about you? I know you've invested, you mentioned in share of sales before. How did you look at distressed assets when you were investing? Like, what were you worried about? What were things that you were focused on making sure you, you didn't make mistakes? You've got to do your due diligence and you have to gather as much information as you can. When you're buying a sheriff sale asset, a lot of times you're buying a property, a house that's been foreclosed upon, that's being sold by the state or by the municipality, and you can't even go inside that house. So the risk for that type of real estate is expecting the worst case scenario. You don't know what you're up against. So you don't want to overpay for what might be, you know, replacing the roof, replacing the furnace, replacing a lot of things that cost a lot of money. So you want to do your due diligence whenever you're investing in distressed assets. The other thing that's really important to think about when you're investing in distressed debt in particular is liquidity. So these type of investments are not like buying a stock or a bond on the public markets. You can buy them, you can sell them pretty easily. Even bonds with low liquidity, you can get out of relatively easily distressed assets less liquid assets. Don't buy those with money you're going to need in the next five or so years because you don't know how long it's going to take to unwind from your initial investment and get your money back plus a profit. That's good advice. So I'm going to ask one final question before we wrap it up. Kelly, we put out an episode a few times ago that talked about the inflation risk. There's certainly talk about the U.S. going into recession You've been through a few recessions before, as Barb has. How should people be thinking about this? Should they be looking for distressed assets? Like, How should they kind of think about the cycle for when this would be the best time to look? Without getting into any specific industries or businesses or sectors, that kind of thing, just generally speaking, you don't want to be buying distressed assets when you're heading into a recession. You want to get it at the, not at the peak, you want to get it at the trough or as it's already heading down. That's where you'll find the value. And then hopefully you recover that value. Now, if you're buying permanent impairment, then the logic would hold true with that. Although you might have inflation that could, it's an asset rich deal. Inflation could boost the price of that somewhat. But I think generally speaking, it's good to not buy distressed assets if you believe we're heading into a recession. As we kind of wrap it up here, final thoughts from you, Barb. With regard to the market time that we're in now, and we're in an unusual situation where we have full employment, but we have rising interest rates and we have falling asset prices like stocks and bonds. This is the time when if you have additional money, and I kind of disagree with Kelly, is I'm not looking to time the trough of a recession in which to get in, because I just don't think you can do that. I think when you find what looks like a good value to you, and there will be more good values as the economy falters, that's the time to get in and buy And that's when more money typically over the long haul is made. So again, you don't want to profit off of other people's problems, but you want to help the markets run smoothly. And if you have the capital at the present to look for either distressed assets, for bargains in any of the financial markets, 
Now going forward for until whenever the economy turns around, it's not a bad idea to just keep your eyes and ears open for bargains in whatever investment markets you're interested in, because over the long term, markets are going to rebound. They always do. And you will make a better profit investing when things are down than when they are at their peak. So you can reach me. I'm Barbara Friedberg. You can find me on YouTube at RoboAdvisor Pros or at Barbara Friedberg Personal Finance. See you next time. Bye. Thanks, Barb. And Kelly, final thoughts from you on this topic and where can people find more about you? You can find me at Kelly at Everyday CPA and website everydaycpa.com. Barb, to clarify, I agree with what you say there 100%. There are values out there now. I personally think we're just beginning the recession. And so I think things are going to go on sale sooner rather than later. So that's how you reach me, Kelly at everydaycpa.com. Well, thanks for coming on, Kelly. And I'd reiterate that too. I think we're going to see a lot more bargains coming up. And I think just patience is a virtue right now. I think it's really easy to jump in and say, oh, these stocks are down 10, 15, 20%, and now it's time to buy. I think you just have to take a step back and get some perspective because even if they're down, like some of these tech stocks are down like 50%, doesn't mean they can't go down another 50%. You look back in the early 2000s and what happened, and you'll notice that that happened a lot there because you're basing numbers on earnings that have already happened, not on what's going to happen. So if earnings get worse, then the numbers look worse. And so the prices keep dropping. And just keep that perspective, because I think it's hard in the moment to say, wow, this stock that I wanted to buy is down so much. Why don't I buy it? And then it keeps going down. I can tell you as an investor in mining stocks, there's a little running joke. It's uh, what's a stock that's down 90%. It's a stock that was down 80% and then lost 50% of its value from there. So you can always lose more money. You know, you can't time the bottom, but you should get some perspective in that if we are going to recession, things might be different. And I recommend everybody, if you haven't listened to it, listen to my Beware of Inflation video and podcast episode. It's really important. It talks about this new paradigm change we're experiencing. And if you don't understand it, it's probably going to steamroll you. So highly recommend listening to that. I recommend that too, Kurt. You did a great job on that. Well done. Thanks, Kelly. So that's the show for this week. Thank you again for joining us this week on Money Tree Investing Podcast. My name is Kirk Chisholm, Wealth Manager of Innovative Advisor Group. We don't just manage your wealth, we make your life better. You can find more about me at InnovativeWealth.com. And of course, you can find me every week here on the show. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and the podcast app if you're choosing. You can also check out the show at MoneyTreePodcast.com. On our website, you'll have access to all the show notes, resources, and the archive shows. Also, we're now on YouTube, so please check out our YouTube channel. When you're there, please subscribe and leave a comment. Lastly, please leave a show rating and comment on the podcast app of your choice. Have a great week ahead. And remember, no one will care about your money like you do. So invest in your life. Thank you for listening to the Money Tree Investing Podcast. Visit us at moneytreepodcast.com for more free investing resources.